Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today I'm speaking with Celtic Studies and Gaelic scholar Michael Newton. He's a researcher and teacher with a history of recovering and interpreting original sources of Scottish Highland language, literature, and tradition. He's written multiple books and even produced and performed on an album of songs in Gaelic, and that's how I discovered Michael's work on my own journey to learn to sing Gaelic laments and blessings and learn about the tradition of keening, which is a thing I do on certain occasions. Michael has a folk school called The Hidden Glen, where he offers online courses on topics in Gaelic culture. I've taken two of the courses, Reclaiming the Roots, which is about deepening the understanding of Scottish Highland heritage, specifically during the era of clan systems. And it's about the importance of the relationship to land and relationships with the more than human world. I'm actually retaking that course in January 2020. It's just so excellent. I've also taken Stories of Immigration, which is about the experience of Gales in the New World as told by Gales themselves. We learn about the complex reasons for mass migration through their songs and remnants of the Gallic Bardic tradition. A new course in 2020 that I'm excited to be taking is called Radicalizing the Roots, Deconstructing Whiteness Through Gallic Lenses and Decolonizing Scottish Heritage. I'm so stoked. It's going to be so good. Michael is a treasure trove of information, and his body of work is a huge gift to those of us with Scottish ancestry. But I also think that all of us from any background benefit from understanding colonization through multiple lenses. It increases both our empathy and our vigilance against hegemonic forces like imperialism, like capitalism. So I wanted to have a conversation with Michael about what Gallic culture and history really is and how it's been co-opted so we can reclaim and radicalize the narrative and be inspired to revive connection with land, language, and culture, which again, I think benefits all of us, Gale or otherwise. So now here's my conversation with Michael. I connected with him online. He was at home in North Carolina. So Michael, what identities do you lead with? Well, one of the things that I say about identity, my own feeling about this is that people tend to individualize their sense of identity more than I think is necessary or maybe even useful that I prefer to think in terms of communities. So for me, the question would be, what communities do I have a a part in? Do I participate in? Do I engage with? Mm. So of course, I grew up in an Anglo-American community in California, actually, although it's more complicated than that in that even my family was kind of divided between uh, a Spanish-speaking community community there and kind of the Anglo, you know, English-speaking community. So even growing up, I had a sense of kind of straddling that divide, kind of an ethno-linguistic divide. Um, That's my kind of my community of origin, as it were. And then when I went to Scotland and went to live there in 19, uh, gosh, 1992, um, then I really threw myself into uh, the deep end in, in the Gallic community there in Scotland and, and uh, kind of had a immersive experience of 
taking on, you know, a different communal um, experience, communal life. And so I, although at, I am now at a much greater distance, I certainly feel myself to be part of a member in a, uh, you know, in, in numerous ways of uh, Gallic communities as well. So in terms of my own life, I'm engaged kind of in a number of different communities, including, you know, the Gallic community in, in Nova Scotia and Scotland, uh, as well as, you know, Anglophone community um, in the U.S. Are you both American and Canadian citizenship? Or? Yeah, I'm actually a dual citizen, uh, given that I spent uh, l- a little over five years in Canada. Hmm. So do you have family roots in Canada or it was a immigration kind of? It was from it was from living in Canada and working yeah. in Canada. I'm not aware of Canadian <laughs> family, but they might be there. I don't really know. Right. Okay. Great. Can we start with some glossary terms? So uh, you've already said the word Gallic, and I'm wondering what is the difference between the word Gaelic as a pronunciation and Gallic. And I'll just kind of give you all the, the glossary terms I'm looking for, and maybe there's some kind of order that makes sense to answer the question. But in a nutshell, like who are we referring to when we hear the term Gaels, Scotch Irish, Scottish, Celtic, and Anglophone? Like who are who who are all these communities? Right. That that's a that's a big hairy question to untangle. So or <laughs> set of questions. So I'll see if I can provide some some uh, top level views of that. So. Celtic or Celtic, they're both correct, is a family of languages and communities that speak those languages. So it's a bit like saying Slavic or Romance or uh, Sanskrit or something like that. It's, it's a family of languages, but it's not a specific one. Uh, it might have been two or 3,000 years ago, a very long time ago. Well, more than 2,000, maybe 3,000 years ago, but for a very, very long time for essentially all of recorded history, it's been numerous distinct communities with their own identities and their own dialects of Celtic. So you have one branch of of Celtic or Celtic, which is the Goidelic branch, and that includes Irish, Scottish Gaelic, and Manx Gaelic. And in most dialects of Scottish Gaelic, the language itself says Gaelic. And so for that reason, Uh, people in Scotland, especially if they're Gaelic speakers, say Gaelic. Now, in Ireland, it's more like Gaelic, and it sounds more like Gaelic. And there are some dialects um, that are now marginal in Scotland that have a pronunciation that's closer to Gaelic. And so uh, for that reason, when the, the word was borrowed into English, it sounds more like Gaelic. But again, these are the kind of external, internal perception, you know, distinctions. Mm. So we have that. Um, There's a very common misconception that goes back to the, basically to 19th century nationalism, that, you know, that there's a single language or single identity for every country, you know, that Germany is a country, therefore there must be a German identity and a German language, or, you know, France is a country, therefore there must be a French identity and a French language. Well, that's just not true, right? That's the kind of myth that they were trying to propagate in order to create these national identities and these nation states. 
So people assume that there is a Scottish identity and Scots are an ethnic group, but that is just simply completely false. Hmm. So in the, really, Scotland has always been a multi-ethnic, multi-linguistic um, nation. Within the nation of Scotland, uh, in the, the modern period, there's arguably at least three different ethnic groups. So you have the people of the lowlands who speak a form of English. You have the Gales living in the highlands who speak a form of Celtic and most specifically a Goidelic language. And then in the Northern Isles, you, you have a, a group that has much greater ties to the Scandinavian world who speak, or at least spoke until fairly recently, and they speak a dialect of, uh, you know, a more of a, a, a Nordic language. So Scotland is not a single ethnic group or identity. It's a, it's a multiple, uh, a group of, or nation of, of multiple identities. And um, then the other complicated term here is this term Scotch-Irish. And this is essentially a group that's the product of colonization, of a, of a colonial enterprise. And you had um, the north of Ireland. So you had, of course, England, the King of England, uh, trying for centuries or the kings to colonize and conquer Ireland. And the most resistant part of Ireland to that was the North, um, Ulster. And part of the reason why it was so strong is that it had close ties to the Scottish Gallic world. And they were bringing in mercenaries uh, from the Western Highlands and Western Isles uh, who were, you know, married into and related to the, the Gaelic chieftains in the North of Ireland. And so that became the focus of efforts of the English crown to conquer. And when that happened, uh, they needed people to settle who would be colonists, who would be loyal to the king. And they looked, of course, for Protestants because religion and politics were closely entwined. Hmm. And these people came to settle, but of course there were already people there. And you have this mix of various peoples and things get really messy because the, colon the colonization did not go as they planned. And again, religion is this you know, complicated thing that sometimes does not quite go the way that you want. You have people you know, who settled there who, okay, they were Protestant, but they were Presbyterian, uh, they weren't Anglican. And so they felt like they were being uh, marginalized and uh, their lives made difficult by not going along with the plans and the loyalties that were expected of them. And as colonization was proceeding apace in North America, they saw that as an easier route than staying here, sorry, staying in the North of mm -hmm. Ireland. And so they started going, but by that time, these people felt themselves to be Irish. They didn't say, you know, now they had come from various places, the North of England, uh, from some of them were Huguenots from France, some of them were actually native Irish people. You know, it was a mix of people. But when they left and those who stayed within the Presbyterian faith, um, several generations later, you had the famine happening in Ireland. These people were Catholic. And there, many of them, a great number of them, were, were Gaelic speakers or Irish speakers. And the people who had come before, who were Anglophones, Presbyterians, they wanted nothing to do with these people who... They may have been Irish, but they seemed like the, the wrong kind of Irish to them. So they had to create a sense of identity that made them seem to be different from these other folks. And that's why 
that's how the term Scotch-Irish emerged. So this is all very complicated. And it tells you that, you know, people want to say, oh, they're all Brits or whatever. That, you know, it, it's, it's not that simple, right? Right. People have, the British Isles has always been a complex place with many different identities, different cultures, different languages. And you have, of course, this dominant group, the, the Anglophones, uh, who had this imperial power that they were able to impose uh, in increasing degrees over time. And that hegemony uh, acted to obscure the diversity of peoples and the diversity of voices and the contentions and tensions that have always been there. Mm. And of course, now, as we see with Brexit, that ability to impose a hegemony has really been breaking down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, that's kind of a lead-in for a lot of these historical issues. Yeah, exactly. Talk about. It's like we're yeah, exactly. It's like we're circling back, or it, you know, the what do they say? Like the hens are coming home to roost. Like it's like, oh, this is still very much alive within us. How are we going to grapple with this? So, when we talk about the Scotch Irish, is my understanding correct that really we're referring to the um, post-immigration communities to the to the New World, and it's the folks who came from. Northern Ireland or Northern Scotland, they, and were they English speaking? So yeah, the Scotch Irish, we're talking specifically about people in the North of Ireland, North of Ireland itself, Mm -hmm. nowhere else, who were Presbyterians and who were predominantly English speaking. Right. And then they immigrate as well. And now we have this Appalachian sort of Scotch-Irish community, or like people frequently describe themselves as Scotch-Irish in the Appalachians. Is that right? Yes, although, you know, some of these people (laughs) are just using this term that's become very widespread, but, you know, even in Appalachia or whatever, there are actually many different ethnic origins for people. And these, these folks, these Presbyterians from Ireland did not only go to Appalachia, they also went to Canada, parts of Canada. Mm -hmm. There were some who uh, retained or became Irish speakers as well. So there's a little bit of, even amongst them, some diversity as well. Mm. Um, So it's very hard to make generalizations. People want these very simple categories, but once you start drilling down into the details of history, it's not that simple. No, totally. I mean, once, yeah, I used to think so much about, oh, my, you know, the folklore of having Scottish ancestry and my, grandparents and great grandparents very much you know um admiring thinking fondly of um having great affection for their history but not actually digging down into like so who was what language did you speak and then recognizing oh these were the villages they came from and this was the last person who spoke gallic and this it it does change like oh scottish not one peoples. <laughs> like, this, yeah. is a big, this is a big deal. So then when you're talking about the Anglophones, in my mind, I'm thinking of um, the British crown. Is it, but it, is there another way of thinking about that? Like, I mean, essentially what it sounds like we're trying to do is understand the cultural connections, not just the regional or, or, or political aff- affiliations. But when you're saying Anglophones, who, who do you mean? Well, of course, it depends on the time period, because mm-hmm. of course, things changed as you just as they have in North America, right? I mean, I went through the process of becoming Canadian citizen and you read the little booklet about Canadian history and you're told, well, Canada has 
is comprised of an English block and a French block. And the English block means people whose ancestors came from England, Scotland, and Ireland. That's completely inaccurate. I mean, people who came from Ireland several, you know, couple centuries ago were all Irish speaking. Mm -hmm. So, and then of course you have the whole legacy of schooling, education being used as a, a tool of assimilation in Canada and making people to be well, Francophones or Anglophones who were not originally, uh, you know, where do the Ukrainians fit into that picture, right? It's, <laughs> it's complicated. So it depends on when you're talking about. So if you were to go back to Scotland in the 12th century, there were very few English speakers. But uh, it's during the 12th century that you have a process of colonization happening where the person who became king had been raised in England and he brought English speaking supporters with him and began to plant the lowlands with uh, with towns with buttas that would be anglophone uh, because they because they were held uh, they were occupied they were settled by people who were anglophones from the north of England and then people coming from the continent from uh, the Netherlands and so on so that's it's really in the 12th century you start getting English planted in these colonies along the lowlands and then over several generations that displaces and assimilates the Gales that had been in the lowlands and Gallic then remains just in the highlands and the Western Isles. And then over time, of course, language is not just, you know, words from a dictionary. Uh, it's not just kind of a name. Uh, it carries cultural implications. So over time, the people in the lowlands of Scotland create greater, um, you know, they, they network with the people in the north of England and other parts of England. And you have like, you know, the Protestant religion coming and creating the sense of a certain shared cultural values and bonds between the lowlands and, and England. And the Gales are, are more and more alienated and more and more disenfranchised from those processes. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating to me to learn that there were kings of Scotland prior to the 12th century. Like I was like, what? Uh, of course. Of course, but also it, it has never, that phrase has never come up uh, in, in my education, in my life. It's not part of the mythology of Scotland. So I found that fascinating. And since I've taken your courses, it's been revolutionary for me to come to understand that most of the history I thought I knew of Scotland had been written by Anglophones and very much from the perspective of a colonizing imperialist perspective. Um, so it hadn't even occurred to me that there might be sources, Gallic sources, buried by history. And this has been a big year for me of waking up to that. Um, and much of your work is actually about uncovering and bringing, lifting up and bringing forward the voices of Gallic um, peoples from the past. So can can we start this conversation with you setting the scene of life in the highlands when the clan system was intact and the people were very much still in contact with the land and the natural world and the supernatural world, the more than human and 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 tell us a bit about like when was the last time that indigenous gallic culture was thriving and and what was that culture like Right. So you could say that um, up until the time of the Battle of Culloden, that most people 
you know, the, the majority of the population of the Highlands were Gaelic speaking. They didn't speak any language other than, than Gaelic. And the majority of people had fairly localized lives. So um, you did have, of course, the nobility who, especially during the 17th century onwards, became more and more integrated into what was going on in the Anglophone parts of, of Britain because they were, they were getting sucked in by, you know, deliberate political policies as well as, you know, what was going on social in the social economic sphere. Uh, but that was kind of just a very small part of the cream of society. But the most, for the most part, most people had very localized lives and ones that had a great deal of continuity. Um, the one thing that's very important and very hard to appreciate now is the role of language in oral tradition, that you had people whose lives were very immersed in this tradition of storytelling and song, and you know, song was an ever-present um, constant in their lives. You know, they whether they were milking the cows or working in the fields, you know, doing uh, agriculture basically, or if they were out with the cattle, if they were um, rowing their boats, you know, whatever they were doing, there were songs that they sang. And these songs were things that gave them the sense of history of who came before them, who had lived there before, uh, what were their relationships uh, to their ancestors, to these forces, these non-human forces that were present in the landscape and present in their lives. So there was very much what I would call an indigenous, a thriving indigenous culture. Um, but as we've kind of alluded to before, of course, you have this expanding Anglophone empire um, centered in England, attempting to consolidate and monopolize political and social and economic control across the British Isles. And of course, it's once that is accomplished in the, in the 18th century that it's then possible to redirect that energy into overseas colonization. And that's why I think it's really an important part of understanding the whole colonial enterprise, whole colonial, the whole story, a whole history of colonization by bringing it back to earlier phases to see how the same values, the same structures, the same uh, attitudes, uh, the same ideologies, uh, they didn't start when, you know, people came to North America and encountered people that looked different from them. It happened centuries and centuries before that in the British Isles itself mm -hmm. with people that they then thought were very different from them and looked different from them. Uh, but that's because the idea of race as we know it didn't exist at that point. They, their notion of difference was based on things like, you know, language and culture and religion um, and these other markers of what they thought were made a civilized versus a savage life. Mm -hmm. So going back to this question about, you know, uh, Gallic culture, of course, it was very much tied to, um, to the landscape and what was possible. Now, life in the lowlands is quite different from that in the highlands because um, the lowlands, at least, they may not be uh, the most fertile lands in Europe, but they have much more agricultural potential than that in the highlands. So as a result, the highlands is very much a pastoral economy based on cattle and milk. And, and dealing with this fairly unforgiving landscape and climate. Mm 
So it produced a very different kind of outlook on life uh, than that in the lowlands. And because of the Gallic memory of having uh, the lowlands taken over by this Anglophone civilization, the Gales felt that you know, the lowlands really had been theirs historically and should be rightfully theirs. And so therefore it was not really a crime to go to the lowlands and take some cattle, which you know, that was movable wealth that mm -hmm. Gales, that's how they survived by milking the cattle and uh, occasionally killing some, eating the meat, uh, bleeding them for blood pudding and so on. Um, so that's one aspect of this rivalry between Highlands and Lowlands um, that Highlanders would sometimes go to the Lowlands to, to liberate a few cattle and reclaim some of their stolen property as it were. <laughs> I, I actually, if I can just interject, I, I, the book that you recommended to me, Highland Folkways by I.F. Grant, that was very insightful when she talked about because the Highlands are so rugged, really roads were very late to come because it's just impassable and very difficult, but cows can get themselves, they can, they can eat, especially Highland cows, those breeds could live on like sticks and they could, they were incredible wealth that could walk themselves to market. And then of course you have these incredibly useful uh, hides, but it, she, and she doesn't talk too much about the cattle raids uh, in, in depth, but, but the frequency that comes up makes you think that it didn't happen occasionally. <laughs> it happened well, like, often enough. It seems that it really hurt, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, this kind of, um, focus on cattle raiding and cattle, you know, in a cattle economy, you get in other parts of the world as well. Like the Maasai people in Africa has a very, have a very, very similar, um, set of practices. Mm. So, uh, it, it, for, for the, for Gallic people, of course, you don't have the notion of private prof property. You have mm. communal property. Mm -hmm. And um, cattle raids were simply the way that you inflicted damage on an enemy. And one of the uh, important coming of age or, or rite of passage uh, ceremonies for a young chieftain was to conduct a raid against an enemy. Mm -hmm. So it's part of their, it was very much interwoven into their way of life. And it, it's because we currently, we now have this notion of like private property of you know theft and civil law and so on that we think of this as being like stealing things wrong, you know right mm -hmm. a moral wrong right which yeah. is just not the perspective that they had then so mm -hmm. it's you know it's imposing our own values our own interpretation mm -hmm. of things on on another group right thank you for that carry on yeah <laughs> um let's see i'm not quite sure where else i was going to go with this but you know, the, the hunt, like hunting was another really um, important act, not just in terms of getting food, but also in, you know, showing leadership qualities in showing uh, physical hardiness of understanding the terrain. And so a lot, you have a lot of Gallic songs that describe or have as a part, as an element of them discussing uh, various heroic men leading the hunt. Uh, the hunt of deer, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, primarily deer. We know in earlier centuries, there were other large wild game, like you know, bears and so on. But by the middle uh, of the medieval period, you know, deer are the main, the main wild animals that are hunted. Mm -hmm. um, and what and about animism? The, Sorry, go ahead. I should say, even the deer are interesting because the deer represent kind of the non-human domesticated 
you know, part of the animal world. And so the deer get associated with, you know, beings like the she and the, the, the fairies or the Fenian heroes of legend and things like that. And you have uh, these these figures like uh, this kind of uh, uh, supernatural uh, notion of, you know, the feminine element of the landscape, essentially, um, whose equivalent of cattle are the deer. And so it's sort of like mm-hmm. a, a reflection, the wild reflection or the natural reflection of the human world into the natural world. Can you say that? I know the kayak has many names, kayak, kayak. Can you say that particular one more slowly? <laughs> Well, yeah, there are several. So Kayak uh, Ver, that's one of her names. Another, in the Central Highlands, she tended to be called Kayak Vengrich. Vengrich, okay. And what does that yeah. one mean? Well, there is a particular mountain in the Central Highlands, Vengrich, uh, and uh, the Speckled Mountain. So I'm not sure why she, you know, was associated, why that particular place became kind of ground zero for that <laughs> incarnation of her, but Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of stories um, that use that name for her. Mm -hmm. Can you mention also the, the, well, the work you did in your PhD and also the Caledonian Forest of the Mind, but the world tree mythology and Gallic culture is really important too. Yeah, I'd say that, so I did my PhD on the symbolism of trees in Gallic literature and tradition. And you can see, you know, in the archeological record thousands of years ago, uh, the symbol of the tree, which certainly seems to be, we don't have texts describing what people were thinking, but, you know, from the archaeological record and from our earliest literary references, uh, there's a very clearly the symbol or the, the signal that we have the notion of this, you know, uh, center of the earth, which is connected, the heavens and the earth are being connected by this uh, tree this tree that connects these powers and uh, kind of is keeping the world in balance as it were. And again, this is, this is a pretty universal symbol. You find it really all over the world in indigenous cultures. And what's interesting is that this tree symbolism, like I say, you find it in the early literature, you have the notions of like the, these, these uh, trees in the very center of territories in Ireland and in Scotland. And then it becomes a very important kenning or metaphor for important leaders or even for the saints, the early saints. And uh, it is a symbol that has continuity really throughout the Gallic world into the modern period. Mm-hmm. So you could arguably say, well, I, I have said, I have argued that this is the symbol with the greatest continuity uh, in Gallic culture. Mm. And you mentioned somewhere that um, different sources talking about, uh, I, I've read a bunch of your articles and books, so I can't remember where this is, but it uh, might've been in Warriors of the Word, but you talk about how, you know, in some of the Gallic songs, it, if the chieftain died, the land would then be bereaved and would mourn the loss of their chief and that the chief was, was betrothed to the land as his wife. And I, I found that very, very touching. And, and yeah, it, it, it and the idea that, the uh, chief and his clan members 
would sometimes be used as metaphors for like a forest grove. You know, there's the one sort of main pillar tree, but then they're all interconnected and woven together. And so those beautiful metaphors back and forth, I was, um, it's interesting to me that that uh, remains so um, uh, vivid in, in the Gallic mind for so many years, since essentially Scotland seems to have been denuded of forests for <laughs> hundreds of years now. Um, can you actually, I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but can you mention a, a little bit about how they perceive forests when they come to the new world? Sure. Um, well, so one thing you get in Gallic uh, literary tradition a lot is these epithets or these kennings for things. So um, for example, um, Ireland is is like renowned in the, in the, in the literary tradition for having all of these nicknames. And there's some of these that exist for Scot Scotland as well. You, you'll have like the Bounds of Eric, you know, so these legendary figures in, in Gallic history uh, become used, uh, become their names become part of these kennings to refer to territories and lands. And when the Gales come to North America, of course, they notice how impressive the tree cover is. And so uh, North America tends to be referred to in, in the Gallic literary tradition as the land of the trees. Mm -hmm. So it, it really made a, a big impression on them, uh, for one, because they're big and imposing. And of course, if your uh, economic system is based on either pastoralism or agriculture, right, trees are in the way of that. So you've got to contend with these, these big trees, which Gales had not had to do that for uh, quite a long, long time in <laughs> Scotland. Now, I mean, Scotland, so as Scotland as a whole certainly did not have this massive tree cover, but there are many places that have very impressive forests in Scotland that were, seem to be remnants of, mm. you know, um, the older kind of Caledonian for, forest, that, as it were. Mm -hmm. So what caused the, the Gallic people to begin the mass migration to the New World? I know this is a massive question and it's complex, but if, if you were trying to explain to somebody who, let's say, you know, like me, I live in the New World, I'm, I'm a settler, a fifth generation, I talk about myself, I identify as a fifth generation settler of Scottish descent, and, you know, I, I, I guess I'm aware of clearances or potato famines and things like that. But if you were to actually bring an academic uh, perspective and say, here's the set of circumstances that caused this mass migration over a period of this amount of time, um, how would you describe that to those of us who've grown up on more of an Anglophone um, romantic notion <laughs> of why? Well, I mean, it's it's part of a, a set of circumstances. There's not like a single explanation. And again, it kind of depends on the time period and the place. Um, you could say that uh, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about um, Anglophones creating a hegemony in the British Isles, uh, that, that hege hegemony or hegemony, of course, was political, but it had social and economic and uh, and religious consequences as well, and you could you could think of this as an early form of globalization. So what happens in this kind of uh, proto-capitalist um, uh, you know empire is that they want to maximize the export product of mm -hmm. land, 
and minimize. That means part of that story is minimizing the number of people that are consuming that product in a particular bit of land. Mm. And so what that what what does that mean? Well, previously, and and you know, say the clan system, for lack of a better word. Um, what was important about land was the number of people you could support, right? Land was, was seen as having social value, not this abstract economic number. Uh, they weren't concerned about exporting product. That, of course, the king was interested in, in how much he could raise in taxes for himself. Um, but that's, that's kind of how these systems came into conflict, that the chieftains, you know, during the clan system, were interested in holding territory and providing in this mutual relationship between themselves, you know, and their, and the dependents providing territory for people to to, to live on and for that to be a stable system and to maximize the number of people they had in their command. So that is not a population minimizing strategy. That's a population maximizing strategy. Capitalism is the opposite. Mm. You have, you need people to create products, to sell, to generate generate wealth, but if the people are consuming, because mm. because they're living in a sustenance economy, if they're consuming what they make, then that doesn't create excess for export. And so these systems came into conflict because the Anglophone world was imposing that capitalist system system on them. And as this was penetrating from the top down, from these people who the chieftains or former chieftains who had been anglicized and you know, from the from the beginning of the 17th century, um, there were laws and policies put in place that the sons the sons of chieftains had to go to the lowlands or to England to be educated in English. Mm. You can see that from the beginning of the 17th century, that uh, that the kings of now the unified kingdom of Scotland and England were interested in anglicizing everybody and putting putting in place a, a top-down strategy for assimilation and for hegemonic control. So you have these people who, whose ancestors were chieftains who were being anglicized, who were being drawn into the orbit of this um, you know, imperial capitalist system. And uh, they were increasingly going into debt. And the lands that they had inherited from their, you know, their ancestors um, did not produce the amount of export product as you would have in uh, agriculturally rich lands such as England or the lowlands. So they, as they went increasingly into debt, uh, they became, you know, more desperate for things, for ways to to um, overcome that. And of course, then after, say, the Battle of Culloden, when you have some of these these folks, you know, defying the government, some on their side, some just trying to stay clear of it all. Anyway, that really enforced the occupations of these lands and their management by, uh, you know, accounting firms in Edinburgh or accounting firms in London. Uh, people who had absolutely no tie to the to the natives there, um, to any notion of being a steward of some sort of ancestral property. Can so, we sort of slow down? Because you're talking about Culloden as a, I think people will know what that is because everybody's seen Outlander, let's say. But <laughs> <laughs> for those of us who haven't been like following that closely, I mean, essentially it's like, so you have the uprising, the Jacobites who are like, you know, 
uh, they want to restore the Scottish kings, basically, essentially, or at least not be in debt to what they see as foreign kings uh, in their land. And so the uprising occurs at Culloden, but they lose, and they, they lose badly. And so now they have the stain of rebellion, and they basically have to, like, pay reparations through blood, sweat, and tears or something um, because they've been shamed now. They, they rebelled and they lost. And so now whoever's left has to like assimilate or, or go or something, right? Is, so that's yeah, why so Culloden's kind of a big deal. So before that last Jacobite uprising in 7045, the government had made kind of half-hearted attempts to have a presence in the highlands to you know do this you know reform this kind of so-called improvement in the way that the social economic system was but none of it was was very it didn't make any accommodations to the realities of life of gales um and it was it was very half-hearted there wasn't really much investment made at all uh, in terms of actually accommodating anything finding ways to uh negotiate uh any ways of uh incorporating in any meaningful way people on their own terms after so the jacobite rising now this can be interpreted in many different ways and you can say this is just a civil war between you know the elites and blah 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 for the average gales they saw the anglophone well they saw the, the central government as being anglophone as being highly hostile to them of having no interest, you know, in their own language or culture, uh, no interest in accommodating who they were, and they had absolutely no political power. So well, when I the think Stuart, that's true, right? I mean, goddamn Samuel Johnson talks about them like they're stupid, they're lazy, they're you know, and they can't be civilized. And the what do they call it? Uh, like basically, it's like justified violence because that's all they understand. So, I mean, I, I am very sympathetic to the Gales feeling like they're <laughs> being, being, you know, characterized as savage because, like, that's in print. <laughs> right. For, and so for several centuries before then, as you say, they're being characterized as a problem, as characterized as people who refuse to be civilized, refuse to be, you know, to assimilate to the norms of this anger British state. So, uh, again, we can draw parallels to other people who are also... Um, you know, have these negative values projected on them, you know, this where you have, you know, the centralized state who say, well, we're the civilized ones and we have, you know, we define, we have the authority to define what is good and bad and civilized and savage. So the Gale saw this ongoing hostility and said, well, at least the Stuart guy, you know, he mm -hmm. actually is descended from our old kings and he seems to care about us. So maybe if we back him, Mm. then the state will accommodate us better and not force us to choose a religion, their religion, not force us to learn their language. So that's why, and you see this in, in the Gallic songs from the Jacobite Rising uh, and from that period, why they're backing Charles Stewart, at least many people want to, because they feel like he's going to accommodate us. He's mm. not going to force this stuff on us. Mm -hmm. So the government really had did not have much control in the highlands they tried to influence things via these power brokers so there might be a chieftain who says okay I'll, i'm gonna do your business you know you back me you give me some money get troops or whatever and i'll carry out your will but that was usually just turns into antagonism mm. it turned into hostilities and into punishing people mm. um and it was on a very small scale but 
after the rising, the government says, okay, we can't, we can't tolerate this anymore. It's distracting us from building our empire outside, you know, the outside <laughs> world. So they, they do a large scale occupation of the highlands and the estates of former chieftains are turned over to a commission, the, the, what is it called? Something like the commission for forfeited estates. Mm. And so now the highlands gets uh, put under uh, this very deliberate system of rationalizing the people there and how things are run and what animals are, you know, are tended to in order to produce a profit and where people are living and how lands are distributed. Because before it was very much a communal system. There wasn't a sense of private property and uh, of me having to compete with my neighbor and pay rent because I have better lands or whatever, you know, it was, it was, mm -hmm. it was always redistributed every year and people or every several years and, and people were sharing their resources, pooling and um, making kind of a spreading across the land, you know, what their, what their ecological needs were. Uh, but everything changed, changed after this. And um, migration of communities of, of Highlanders started uh, about, let's see, about six or seven years before Culloden because these, these pressures of globalization were already starting. Mm -hmm. So in Gallic society, you had chieftains, of course, and then underneath chieftains, you had these men called taxmen in English who were people who managed, they were sort of middle managers. They were people who managed estates and they took care of things like, you know, dealing with what was going on in these local estates uh, dealing with the administrative issues, and then they would pay a certain amount to the chieftain. And when, you ha when you're trying to essentially make these systems more efficient, just like in modern capitalism, you get rid of the middlemen, right? Mm -hmm. And so some of these middlemen saw that this was going to happen, and they said, well, we better, we better leave and go to the colonies because things are going to fall apart here. And if we don't leave, then we'll be squeezed out and... Um, inflation is going to hit us and will be our we will be worth nothing so you have a few small scale migrations happening in the late 1730s but it's really in the aftermath of Culloden when you start getting uh, these intense rents being imposed on people people have been taken away from their traditional lands um, they're no longer able to make a living in the old way that they did, but on a sustenance level basis, they're being forced into a cash economy that things really start falling apart. So, and this happens in, you know, many, many different social settings, many different nations. It's the people at the upper end of the social economic ladder who see what's happening and who, who have the experience with bureaucracy and the capital to leave preemptively. Mm -hmm. So those, you get some early migrations that are, I wouldn't exactly call them voluntary, but they're, they weren't as much under duress as what happens later. Then in the later 1700s and then early 1800s, you, ha you have these large scale forced evictions and forced migration of, you know, clearances in which, um, you know, and, and it's also important to realize that in the 18th century, the Gales were being racialized as an inferior race as people who were said not to be capable of ruling themselves, of managing themselves. And they had to have this paternal, this, you know, paternal decision makers, you know, mm -hmm. create their destiny for them. So, but uh, it's also saying, impacting well, them at like really personal levels in the sense that, yeah, by the 1750s, the 
um, the schools, like, you know, every parish having the English school had already been happening, but then it was like now everybody, so it's like getting at the local level, everybody's learning English. And after Culloden, that's when they're outlawing the kilt and the tartan. And so you can't dress that way. You can't talk that way. And, you know, you've written in several places that the full weight of government came down to try to weaken the ties between the clan and the chieftain. So, so also just the entire familial structure of the clan system is there, like it's a divide and conquer kind of thing, right? Right, right, yeah. It's like right, hardcore, exactly. it's every, it's every yeah. level of their lives. And, and now you're getting pushed off. You've lost your land because you lost the war. And now, you, now what? Like you, you don't have the skill. You've been living in this very land-based way. What are you going to go live in a city? You have some transferable skills somehow. You don't even speak English. Right. And that's, that's how the Gales start getting uh, recruited into the military effort, right? Because just like say the modern U.S. where a huge percent of the budget is spent on the military, uh, that was the case back then in the 18th century. Something like 75% of the yearly budget was regularly spent on the military. So these uh, former chieftains or former gentry realized, hey, uh, we've got these assets we could use to get money. We have all these former clansmen who they don't have skills that can uh, be transferred into urban settings. You know, they don't have training in mills or whatever. They're, they were just pastoralists, but, uh, but they would make it soldiers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or at least they had in the past. I mean, right. by, by the time of called that, that was pretty much a thing of the past. Mm, okay. um, but certainly, they could use that image. They could mm. they could claim, "Hey, you know, we're from the Highlands, and we're all a bunch of ruffians, so therefore, we'd make good soldiers." Right, and so so again, that's where that like happens. Now we see many of the um, lower economic um, uh, communities getting heavy recruitment into the American military, and uh, let's be honest, even the Canadian. They, like, yeah, you go where people are poor and they need opportunity, and so now, hey, we have this huge front called the New World, and we need soldiers. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, yeah. It's so I mean, sad. It's so sad. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, uh, you know, as as a as a quick nutshell, um, that that is the case. And uh, and again, it's interesting how this played out in in the North American theater of war, um, in ways that were quite prominent at the time. But nowadays, of course, we just talk about the Brits or the <laughs> British Army or British North America or whatever, um, because the conflict that is sometimes called the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, um, that was the first attempt to create Highland regiments from, you know, up from the young men of the Highlands. And this was not that long after Culloden. Uh, many people in the government still did not trust the Highlanders because they thought they were a bunch of rebels who would not submit to the authority of the British crown. They might rebel. Uh, they might be secret Jacobites. They might ally with the French, you know, who had, they had been just been allied. Time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or their longtime allies. Um, and so it's, it's with that engagement um, in that war and the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, of course, very famous in Canadian history. Mm -hmm. uh, and Gales played a very prominent part of that. They felt demonstrated conspicuously their allegiance to the crown that helped to 
turn them into these, you know, figures of, of suspicion and, you know, disloyalty and kind of these noble savages into, you know, these heroic, loyal warriors. Right. So it was so meant to be redemptive. Point. And they, yes. they kind of thought like, okay, so we're, we're in the doghouse right now. We don't have many opportunities. So again, it's not exactly like forced out, but essentially like for all practical purposes, there was no other opportunity. So they're getting recruited into the army now. I mean, it, 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 it boggles my mind. Cause I think like, so this is like one generation later, not even these, some of them mm-hmm. are the same people who had been like what they called the old alliance between Scotland and France. There had been such cultural sharing. The food of Scotland had been so influenced by French cuisine. There there was like such sharing. And now you have to turn and like fight against them because you are sort of supplicant to the the king. So they come to the new world that one of the little details in one of the classes I took with you was just the awareness that like, oh, right, Highland regiments. Like we have, I live in Victoria. It's a extremely colonial, you know, many vestiges of, of sort of proud colonialism in the town that I live in, in, um, you know, we're the capital of uh, British Columbia. You can't go to a public event without the pipes and drums and the Highland regiment coming out. It's a very, it's a source of pride. It had never occurred to me that, of course, you would have to have Highland regiments. They didn't speak English. <laughs> they needed to be with soldiers who spoke their same language. So they were, you know, segregated partly for these political reasons, but also just for the practical purpose that it just, it, they were totally different people. They were not the Anglophone sort of like British migration that you think of. They didn't even speak English. It just, that just kind of gets me every time that really within like two generations, their entire culture gets flipped upside down in the Mm -hmm. new world. Yeah. 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 I I, want to ask you more about how the Gallic experience in many ways parallels the First Nations and, and the Native American experience of colonization in the Americas. But I'm also very aware that there are those who might use these kinds of conversations or this kind of knowledge uh, as a way to undermine social justice for people of color who are still experiencing um, cultural genocide or trying to recover from that today. So for instance, in many spiritual spaces that I notice where there's um, revival, revivals of like heathen and pagan traditions, particularly of, of um, Norse mythology and religions, let's say. I mean, they, they're being absolutely appropriated by white supremacist groups or even people who wouldn't identify as white supremacists, but who say, you know, oh, the Irish were treated like slaves or, you know, and, and, and then there's this like sensitivity because, um, yeah, like that. So to discover that there were Gallic people who were stolen into slavery, maybe only twenty thousand, let's say, but that that did happen. But that they, the experience of like colonization, displacement, slavery that Gales experienced is very different from what people of color experienced. How, are you concerned about talking about these parallels? Um, 
and how that might be appropriated by um, malicious interests, but also how that might perpetuate harm and minimization for people of color today. Well, this is kind of a big and complex issue, but I think it's a really important one. Um, I think I think there are certainly people involved in social justice right now who come from marginalized communities who are um, who don't want this com conversation to happen because they feel like if that happens, they no longer have this exclusive um, monopoly on victimization. But I think that that is a very limiting and self-defeating attitude because it assumes that everybody can be thrown into one or another category, that you're either a victim or you're a, an oppressor, or you know, you're, either, you're either one thing or the other. It's a zero-sum game. And, that, uh, and that's ahistorical. It's not true. And it's not true in any particular period of time. Uh, quite often, what happens is, is you have this collateral violence that happens with any group. And uh, you usually, with any group, you know, anybody who is a victim quite often becomes a victimizer later on, that they, they, they're not able to heal their trauma, and so it comes out, you know, horizontally to other people. So there is a very long and complex history to, the, to colonization. Uh, some of it has to do with this chain of trauma that gets passed on from group to group, generation to generation, or even within families. And some of it has to do with what happens with power, with just human beings, right? Because there have been plenty of experiments about what happens when one group of, of people gets power over another people. Mm -hmm. that almost Can I actually slow you down just for a second? Because I think sure. what you're saying is very important, but I'm noticing dysregulation within myself because it's like, yeah. it's hard to hear that, um, let's say people who are, uh, yeah, still recovering from genocide today, that, that the, not that you said that it's the only threat, but that like one of the main reasons that they wouldn't want this to come to light is because of a monopoly on victimization. Whereas I actually view whiteness as like pretty monopolizing. <laughs> and so if anything, it would be a fear that white people will now reclaim victimization who in fact today enjoy myriad privileges. And my understanding from being in your classes and, and I'm excited about radicalizing the roots is that you, you know, what you're saying is like, no, we have to have a nuanced and complex understanding of colonization in order under, to understand how like, yeah, today as white people, we have a hard time recognizing um, how we perpetuate the history of colonization. Um, so I hear it different. I've heard you describe it differently and I need to just kind of slow down because I can feel that it's like, uh Oh, that, that, that sounds dangerous because I hear people who are white mm -hmm. supremacists say you don't have a monopoly on being a victim. My people were slaves too. And it, and I think the key is that like there it, when we're going to well, talk about it today, right? well, yeah the key part of the key is mm -hmm. time is these these stories are different because they they diverge at certain time time mm -hmm. periods mm -hmm. and part of the problem is that people want to essentialize everything mm. so if you are this then you're that you belong because of this you belong in this category mm -hmm. right but if we're talking about 
But if we're talking about the time dimension, things change over time. I mean, the whole idea of whiteness didn't exist before colonization in the new world. It's, mm -hmm. it's the thing that made a hegemony of power possible mm -hmm. by creating this artificial construct that divided people. Mm -hmm. That made some people feel like if we can band together in this group, we get this special power over this other group who we're gonna dispossess, we're gonna enslave or whatever. So you have to look at it chronologically as something mm. that is created. And it's something that's created out of that Anglo-Saxon manifest destiny legend, right? Mm. You don't go to mm. Europe and say, uh, you know, I'm looking for, for my white culture. It doesn't exist in Europe. It doesn't exist anywhere but here. Mm. And, it's, and it's created out of that Anglo-Saxon foundation. Mm -hmm. And so we you still have, have to it today. Whiteness. We're still grappling with yeah. it today because as, you know, like because Brexit, because rise of right-wing fascism throughout, you know, the 20th century, because, you know, it, the, the, the rise of whiteness and what you were talking about in the very beginning about nation states is still very much alive with us. And we're very much at risk, I think, of of a resurgence of that, which is like why I'm very sensitive about like, I want to talk about the parallels with the gals, the gales and the First Nations in North America. And we're experiencing um, similar forms of unrest where those with, with power and those with this identity of whiteness, many don't want to give that up. Like it's right. like in so a good you, run. You have to, so you have to make differentiations. I mean, mm -hmm. having a certain physical appearance allows you to go into this category of whiteness, but it is something that was created historically. It's a social construct that would, did not exist several hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so you have, to, you have to differentiate between you know, your human being who happens to be put into a particular category and um, that what that category, how that category has been created and empowers people who are in it but also we have to judge people for what they do and not for who they are. If you make everybody feel ashamed because they pass as white or they identify as white, you create a backlash. And that's part of what we have now. We have people who feel like it's really unfair that because I'm a white male that I get thrown in the oppressor category. And so therefore, if all I'm gonna do, if all I'm gonna get is this pushback when I have very little power in my life, then I'm just gonna go alt-right right? I'm just going to, I'm just going to push back to you and I'm not going to have any empathy or sympathy. In my opinion, part of what we need is we need people to say, you know, my background is this other thing that has its own legitimate existence and identity. And it's not part of whiteness. I don't identify with the idea of just being, being part of this super group that's based on a hierarchy and a hegemony. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to make this a radical thing. Right. That's that's part of what we need. We need we need radical gales. Gales to say, I'm gonna I'm gonna reclaim this identity in the name of liberation of myself and other people out of this system of oppression. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. you know, this 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 jail keeping system needs multiple people. It's not just the person in the jail, it's a jailer. Mm -hmm. The jailer needs to be liberated as well out of that system of trying to maintain a hegemony mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a hierarchy. And definitely found that the more I've learned about the oppression and displacement and, um, you know, cultural genocide against the, the Gales, the more I've understood my own 
almost like I can't even quite explain why, you know, in present day, you know, for instance, in 2011, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, hearings came through Victoria and I went, I went alone. There was like nobody in my milieu that was really into it, except for my, except Quakers. I'm part of the Quaker community. So like they were, they were there too. But I, I mean, I was in the audience alone because it just was like too heavy for any of my white friends. But I felt this compulsion to go. And it's taken all these years for me to realize, I think it's epigenetic. I think it's like in my blood that I can empathize with the, the, uh, extinguishing the the deliberate extinguishing of a culture as being so shattering so so staggeringly painful and for so many generations and so to just uh, to discover in retrospect that this happened to my people helped me understand, I think, where that empathy came from so I, I really have appreciated being able to learn from from you and from these Gallic sources that um, that that yeah, like I, I come from a long line of colonizers, but I also have this other experience as well. And that's what makes me want to, yeah, want to liberate, want to empathize, want to radicalize how we look at identity. I, I, would you say that that's um, where your work has kind of gone to? Like you have a few different courses that are starting in January and I do want to ask you to describe them each, but I, I'm sort of curious if through your own cultural study and reclamation, if that's kind of where you've come to, to this place of, of empathy and uh, for, for civil rights and social justice? Well, I mean, I've always been, been on the social justice kind of, you know, in that movement, in that mindset. Um, it's over time, I've gathered more and more bits, bits of the story, tried to recreate and reconstruct more and more of the, of the little stories that go into the bigger story about you know, um, coloniality as Gales experienced it at, on the receiving side, but also how they're co-opted into it and how that intersects with race and so on. Um, so, so one of the courses, the reclaiming course, is basically focusing on, you know, how can we understand Gallic culture as an indigenous knowledge system, as an indigenous society with a certain kind of relationship to itself and to the world and, and with others. Um, and then the course that I'm about to start, the Radicalizing the Roots course, um, looks specifically at um, the issues of coloniality and intersections with all sorts of social injustices and marginalization, and how that helps to explain the way in which Gallic culture, well, let's say Highland culture, because it's very much a tokenistic kind of thing, <laughs> has been packaged and co-opted by forces other than its its own community you know by by empire by military by uh race and whiteness so that people have the critical tools to prevent that from being the case so you, so you can have power over you know your own understanding of heritage so that you're not so easily co-opted into these things that are of no benefit to the actual native community mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also had a third course, which I took, the um, Stories of Immigration, and I wonder if that should come after Radicalizing the Roots, <laughs> because, it, like, I understand there's the chronology of, like, so, you know, okay, let's talk about, like, Gallic, Gaelic indigeneity, and then let's, and then, you know, we can radicalize that. I think then it's worth revisiting. I actually think the Stories of Immigration gets even more complex, because you're talking mm -hmm. about you know, like, yeah, how 
did um, how did the Gales perceive their new country and how were they received? And, you know, some of the sources talk about uh, a strong identification and, and empathy with the plight of the uh, Native North Americans. Um, and one thing that just like, oh, I found it so heart, like poignantly heartbreaking was the, the, the story, the person who had said how embarrassed he felt wearing the kilt. Um, or like, you know, the peasant dress in cities in particular. And so why they kind of avoided that they didn't sort of speak the language, but also they couldn't like wear their clothing. And, and the woman who talks about that, like just it feels different. They're wearing different things. They're speaking different things. Their songs are different. And that sense of alienation, we think of it as, yeah, manifest destiny. They come over, they got all this land. It was all, you know, hurrah. And it's all been great since then. But um, like, how, how did, how did the Gales, what are, what are, how do you see how the Gales viewed their home in the new world and, and how they were received here? Um, well, this does feed into this, this issue of whiteness, because again, people think of whiteness as being some sort of like, you know, natural, inevitable, organic, biological endowment, but it's a, it's a social construct. And it's one that's basically built out of the rubble of destroyed cultures or assimilated ethnic groups, you know, it's a replacement. It's, it's a form of assumed empowerment mm -hmm. because if you buy into whiteness, you're buying into this idea that, oh, wow, now I might've been persecuted in my home territory, but now I'm at the top of the, of the pinnacle and, and so top of the social ladder. And if I'm at the top, it means I have to make sure that other people stay below me. Mm. And, you know, and quite often whiteness came with a sense of, of you have to assimilate to this kind of Anglo-Saxon notion of, you know, of an ethno-linguistic, you know, norms uh, in order to really be part of that. Uh, you might be able to dress up in a costume on certain ritual days, St. Andrew's Day or Burns Night or something, but that's not really how you live, right? It's just sort of like some kind of tokenistic um, celebration or, acknowledgement of a past but it's not it's not the present because the present is kind of the exclusive monopoly of this anglo-saxon you know civilization and so the gales are you know that's the pattern you see with all the ethnic groups that come from you know europe or even parts of the middle east they they they, they assimilate into this anglo-saxon kind of norm but unlike those other groups who had no previous you know, experience of being marginalized by Anglophones, the Gales did. Like for centuries, there is this, this history of antagonism and being inferiorized by Anglophones. So many of them came to North America already feeling like they had been stigmatized for being who they were. Mm. And that there was, you know, that they may have come from, you know, uh, a rural countryside where Gaelic was the norm, even though it was kind of uh, put down in the schools and they had to speak English in school. But but coming to a city in North America, like there was no avoiding it. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to move up the ladder, you had to assimilate. Mm -hmm. So you have, uh, at the same time, of course, you have kind of this romanticization of the noble savage. Gail is Highlanders and noble savage. So you kind of have a certain amount of space for kind of playing the role of a Highlander in certain ritual <laughs> occasions, like your Victoria pipe band or whatever. <laughs> uh, but it's not really how people were able to live. 
Mm -hmm. You know, the the Anglophone establishment really had a hegemony over things. So you have you have a sort of um, what's the word uh, that bifurcated consciousness, Mm -hmm. schizophrenic. You have kind of a schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. you know, view of identity and of the 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 necessity of really um, conforming to those norms in kind of polite society. Mm-hmm. And you did have, you know, these uh, social organizations in certain places. And um, I think Victoria probably had one. Certainly Vancouver had one. Gallic Society where people would get together once a month and sing songs and things. Still do. Yeah. The choir but again, like, <laughs> yeah. that's sort of an optional thing that happens only at ritual, mm-hmm. excuse me, ritual times and occasions. It's not the way that you live your life. Mm-hmm. So, um so there was a lot of ambiguity, and but also the other thing is people had a real sense of resignation that oh well we've you know we don't really have a future a viable future as a separate people, um, and that's what happens really after Culloden, you know bit by bit in the Highlands you know with schools and churches becoming essentially hostile to people's native language and culture, there's a greater sense of of um, inevitability about it that well we just don't really have a choice and it's important people realize too that your common gales couldn't vote until the 1880s by which time like they'd lost almost all of their land and even to the present day the scottish highlands uh, or scotland as a whole has the worst pattern of land ownership in the developed world so like people are just so disempowered you know Mm -hmm. uh it's it's hard for, I think, for people to believe how bad the situation has been and, and remains in, in Scotland. Wow. Wow. So, so they still don't own their own land kind of thing? Like it's right. still just the intergenerational inheritance passed down from Anglophone family lines? Well, basically. I mean, in the last several decades, it's more been foreign, foreign you know, rich people coming in and buying large uh, estates oh. in the highlands like for, as hunting estates you know and uh, these are like you know saudi oil men and you know right. dutch corporate you know leaders with tons of money so, right just reenacting this yeah. right oh. it's colonialism but it speaks many languages right, <laughs> the right. language of money yeah 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 so michael how how do you personally cope then? Like, so I can feel the the melancholy, you know, the the inevitability, the resignation, the sadness. It makes sense to me why you know laments and keening are one of the few song traditions that I've I'm noticing getting a great resurgence uh, in language revitalization circles and cultural reclamation circles around the Gales because there's so much sadness, there's so much loss, there's so many, so much disillusionment, you know, comes to the new world, we'll, we will migrate as a clan, we'll, and then you still can't keep it together. And there's so many losses. So how do you personally cope with the loss and the grief as you've been accumulating all this knowledge? Well, having a spiritual tradition, I think, is really important for anybody who's going to be involved in social justice work because, you know, again, not only do people often have their own traumas, but just being constantly involved in these dialogues can be traumatizing and triggering. So you have to find a way, I think, to, to be spiritually grounded. Mm. And How do um, you do that? 
Well, I don't do as much meditating as I should, but meditating is part of it and being part of a church community that I can have regular reminders about things I should be doing and try to do <laughs> them. You know, like like meditation, um, like like explicitly enumerating the gratitudes that you have in, in life, even the simple things. Um, practicing gratitude is a really good way of reminding yourself of the good things in the world you know, and, and just the gift of, of life itself. Um, finding other people that you can discuss these things with that are supportive is really helpful. There's plenty of trolls in the world and plenty of people who, who hold grudges and resentments that are self-defeating. You don't want to have too much of that, right? Um, so I, I, I talk to people not only who are Gallic speakers and are involved in Gallic revitalization, but I like to find other people in parallel struggles. I have a friend who's Cherokee, and we sometimes talk about, you know, there are so many parallels. It, even the same jokes, except except for being Gallic as Cherokee. I mean, the exact same thing, right? The more you the more you get involved in this, the more you realize these actually are common struggles. We're, we're not fighting. We shouldn't be fighting against one another and saying, well, I'm you know, I hold a, a bigger part of the oppression story than you do. I mean, that's that's pointless. Like, we all have to support each other in this because uh, we all have a lot to lose and we could all have a lot to gain. Mm-hmm. And we're going to gain by not siding with the side of colonization, of he- not the side of hegemony, not the, the side of, the, the side of you know, capitalism and, and, mm-hmm. and everything that, that is against localized forms of sovereignty and forms of culture and so on and so th- those those are some of the things that, that I do um, my daughter I have a seven-year-old daughter and I speak Gaelic to her exclusively mm-hmm. and um, she is a wonderful kind of gift to me and she and I leave milk blessings to the she and the fairies in our garden at ritual occasions and things like that um, I find I find helpful, um, but you know it, it, it is easy to be to feel the weight of these things. Hmm. Hmm. It, it's so interesting too. I think what you said, like it doesn't. Who does it serve for us yeah. to um, begrudge somebody else having? awareness of the cultural traumas they suffer, they've suffered right mm-hmm. and it just works like in in every direction and when you you know get your 23 and me or your dna results and you've been told your whole life you're scottish and then you look and it's like this vast broad land where they say northern british isles it's like oh there's a lot of anglophone and anglo-saxon in me that can't be you know um anti-British, whatever that is, you know, and, and I know so many um, indigenous folks here on the Kwangan territory and uh, Hokuminum territory and different territories where I've grown up who have Scottish last names, you know, <laughs> and so it, it, it's, it's been actually really nice to be able to share with them some um, of the history of the Gales in, in Scotland and say, oh, like, interesting, your name, it comes from the Highlands. Like, what do you know about mm-hmm. that? And Yeah, yeah it's really that. amazing the number of times I'll read a, you know, a, a story on the CBC about, you know, First Nations person is helping to lead language effort in their community. And they'll have a, 
a Gallic name like, you know, McKeever or something. You know? and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and whenever I, I, I talk to First Nations people, you know, there are so many who are only one or two generations removed from Gallic themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, I think when you talk to people who are actually involved in these things uh, and you share what you're doing, they recognize, uh, you know, a common struggle. It's only people, I think, who who look at these kind of categories and they think in terms of categories instead of personal experiences who feel this kind of grudge and resentment because we're in this, we should be in this together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the choices that we make and our personal responsibilities for decolonization matter more, I think, in that struggle than, you know, what your skin color is. Mm-hmm. So tell us, so that people can follow you. I mean, you've been an incredibly prolific writer for quite a long time, but so people who are interested in your courses or who want to follow the direction your work is taking in the next while, um, what's the best way for them to discover that? Well, I've unfortunately <laughs> kind of have things split between three different places on the internet. Mm. Um, the, uh, the folk school that I've created is called Hidden Glen, Hidden Glen Folk School. And I believe that is hiddenglen.org. And I have an occasional blog on there. And I've just written three in a series called Decolonization is for Everyone, Especially White Folks. (laughs) Um, So I try to make those to be fairly, you know, accessible and readable. Um, I've got a number of blog posts, like scores of them now, that are a little bit more technical, many of them, uh, which is on a Patreon site. And I think if you look at Patreon and Michael Newton and Gaelic Michael is usually my handle on most things, you can find it there. And then I also have a bunch of my scholarly writings on academia.edu. So I don't quite remember what my handle is. I can send you a URL. Oh, uh, but again, there Michael are Newton. so many good papers. Yeah, just Google it. Academia, <laughs> Michael Newton. <laughs> it, yeah, the, all the papers will come up. And they've circulated on Facebook at different times as well as, as blog posts. So, um, and, yeah. uh, and I'll just mention really quickly that like I, I'm, I think, the only person who's really looked seriously at this question of interactions between um, Scottish Gales and uh, First Nations. So I've got several papers on that topic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but you're and freely many accessible. Books, in that. And all of the books are very thick. And I'm like <laughs> moving through them, but they're so good. And they have so many songs and, and things like that as well. So um, all of this is going to be linked in the show notes. And um, I'm going to be in the classes this winter again, and I highly recommend them to folks or if people have questions about them, they can track me down on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, because I'm definitely going to be encouraging more folks to to join me. Um, This has been a really great conversation. I've been so lucky to be tutored by you and taught by you, Michael, in so many ways. So thank you for having this very frank conversation and also for just like slowing it down so that I can like regroup. Cause see like a a person's nervous system is, is like, it never goes away. Our, our personal traumas and our personal defenses and our personal hurts and wounds and the people that we love and how we imagine they're listening to this right now. It's all very much there. And I think that's why we have to do this work. We have to unpack it together and know our histories really well. So thank you for doing so much work to enable that. Thanks for being on the show, Michael. Top of
Thank you very much. Okay, wait. So when we've gotten off calls before, you have said you speak Gaelic and I mm -hmm. sing some Gaelic and I'm too embarrassed to try to speak uh, greetings. So here I am publicly saying, Michael, will you teach me what you just said and how to say it? Okay, so I said, Tapalat. I said, Tapalat, Hain, because I was kind of responding to you. So that's, thank you yourself, Hain, <laughs> self. Tapalat, Hain. Is that a T or a Ch that you're saying? Tapalat. 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 Thank you, you. <laughs> <laughs> Was it just me, or did you also get a tiny bit teary when Michael described leaving milk offerings in the garden with his seven-year-old daughter? Oh, oh, my ovaries, oh, my heart, oh, my eyes, so adorable and touching. I had to, like, breathe through it. Don't mind me, I do the same thing when I see toddlers dance in, like, round dances or at powwows, just, like, past the Kleenex. And then, are you okay with how awkward I made it for a second there? I was kind of triggered, but uh, Michael did a good job, I think, of listening and explaining what he meant. And I love it when I capture moments like that on, on the show. Um, just, you know, of how we can maintain connection with each other, even while refusing to conform to social norms, you know, that say, like, conflict is taboo or, like, don't make it weird. I, I feel like we betrayed whiteness just a tiny little bit there by just naming that, like, uh, I need to slow down. This, that, that, I'm, I, I can't process what you just said to me. Um, so I, I feel really happy about that. That makes me really happy. Um, I'm going to link to a bunch of my favorite essays by Michael, as well as um, the books of his that I've read, a few of them, and uh, most certainly I'll link to hiddenglen.org. So you can join me in January and February, and perhaps later on in the year, to study with Michael. And if you don't have time right now, but it's something you think folks should know about, please, please, please share far and wide, like repost and comment on our posts on social to signal boost, email your friends and family. Like, don't you have a nan or an uncle who'd love to learn more about their Scottish Highland roots? I've, I've received so much generous teaching from fellow students. Like, I mean, really deeply informed, well-researched people of all ages across the globe are in these classes and sharing their thoughts and their experience. Some of them even growing up in the Highlands. You know, I've, I've learned almost as much from the links they drop in the Facebook groups as I do from the curriculum. I mean, maybe that's exaggerated, but I've learned a ton from the sharing. I really can't say enough good things. So you'll find the show notes at numinouspodcast.com. So tafalif to all the Gaelic speaking listeners in the diaspora. Surely there are a few of you. You know, for about a year now, actually, I've been saving up for a trip to the Highlands to visit sacred sites, um, but also, you know, to walk the land of my ancestors. They raised Highland ponies around Inverness and Tulloch and Delmi up until um, the turn of the last century. So I plan to sit and sing a while in the fall and winter of 2022 and other parts of Europe too, planning on maybe like if you're going to spend the carbon to go from Canada to Europe, you got to make it worthwhile. So I'm planning on like a two or three month tour, you know, host some workshop, do some things. So I'll see you then. Uh, well, okay. I think I know how to say this in Gaelic actually. Um, 
Chimia Ristu. Hang on. Chimia Let me try it again. Chimia I'll see you again. And until next time, take care.